If you would, grab your copy of Scripture, open to the book of Luke as we continue in chapter 8, our series in Luke, Chronicles of a Savior. Uh, So thoroughly enjoyed uh, being able to take some time off, slow down, disconnect, spend some just quiet time, just peaceful, quiet time, just being still and knowing that He is God. And I'm so refreshed and so grateful and so thankful and yet so so overwhelmed by what God continues to speak to us on Sunday mornings through our study through the book of Luke. This morning we find ourselves bearing down upon the parable of the sower. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture. It's a passage of Scripture that uh, I would say second only to the parable of the prodigal son is probably one of the the most familiar, best-known parables in all the Bible. And yet, I feel and I believe that we will, if God's willing, be able to see this morning that it is terribly misunderstood. Terribly misunderstood. And that this simple yet frightful parable has so much to say to us and can answer so many questions in our hearts and help us. And so I want to pray, and I want to pray, as I pray, I want you to pray specifically this morning that God will give you ears to hear as we begin to look at what God would say to us in Luke chapter 8 through this parable. Let's pray together. Father, we come before Your Word And Lord, even now as we are about to embark on reading this parable, Lord, I pray, God, that you will give us ears to hear. I pray that you'll give us eyes to see, Lord. I pray that you will awaken us, God, to the truth of your word, that we'll see the deep and true meaning behind this parable, Father. And I pray, Lord, that it will change us. I pray, Father, that, God, it will fall upon fertile hearts this morning. And that, Lord, it will resonate within us and it will grow within us, Lord, and that we'll be different. So, Father, protect us from the evil one who seeks to snatch it away. And even now, Lord, already he is at work in this place. And so we pray, Father, that you will overwhelm him in your power and that you'll be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's so many things that that can astonish us. There's so many things about... Life, especially today in this world, that just don't seem to add up. I mean, you, you you find yourself maybe as me just scratching your head sometimes and thinking, what is going on? What's going on in this world? You know, a couple of weeks ago as we were all preparing for the end of the world because some fruitcake decided it was going to be that. And here's the thing. It's not like the dummy wasn't already wrong once. And yet here we all go again and every channel you turn on, they've got him there talking about the end of the world. And I'm thinking, really? Really? No wonder they think Christians are nutcases. That guy is. But have you ever just stopped and and, and thought about the tedious way in which the gospel goes forth and how... Strange that is. In other words, here's what I mean. It it just seems to me logically that knowing what God's done in my life, 
living the life that I live, being able to be surrounded by people who have been utterly transformed by the gospel, that not a week goes by in the life of this church that we don't see God's hand miraculously moving in families and circumstances and situations. We see people who go through horrific suffering and yet find joy. We see people who have tremendous needs and yet God supernaturally meets them. We see people love in ways that are just completely not human, and yet the gospel goes forth in such a slow, tedious way. In other words, it's astonishing that the world is not all Christian. I mean, why are they not all believers? Well, why? How? And then here's, here's something to think about. What about all the people who have been exposed to the Word of God and yet remain unconverted, remain separated from God? That we can come in here... And me and you can sing amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? I mean, is there any greater news than that? Now, if we have cash for clunkers, we all go crazy all over the country. But the king of the universe sent his son to die, that all of our sin would be forgiven, that we might be redeemed, that we would live forever, that we would have no fear in death, that we would find joy and comfort in all circumstances. And yet the world seems to just ignore that. That's astonishing. That's not logical. Why? Why is it that way? How is it that some of you in this room are amazing, unbelievable followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet you have people who live in the same house as you. You have people who are in your family who are yet unconverted. How is that possible? This parable addresses that. And this parable so many times brings us such great comfort. And I'm not saying it shouldn't bring us comfort, but this is a frightful word from the Lord. Let's read Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. The Bible says, And when a great multitude had gathered together, they came to Him, Jesus, from every city, and He began to speak to them a parable. He said, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away, because it lacked moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground. It sprang up, it yielded a crop a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then his, his disciples asked him, saying, Lord, what does this parable mean? And Jesus said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it has been given in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. But they have no root. 
They believe for a while, but in time of temptation they fall away. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, they go out and are choked with the cares of the world, riches and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. That, my friends, is a frightful, frightful parable. I want us to just begin by looking at some obvious truths here. I want to establish some things so that we can move forward and look at the, and look at the, the, the application in the parable. But before we do that, let's just see these things. First of all, what is this parable not about? This parable is not about kinds of sowers. It has nothing to do with different kinds of sowers and different kinds of farmers. Anyone who sows the true Word of God is a sower. So right now, I am sowing the Word of God to you. When you share the gospel with a co-worker, neighbor, family, friend, you are sowing the Word of God. It's not about different kinds of sowers. It's not about different kinds of seeds. It's about the Word of God. The seed clearly is, as verse 11 says, the Word of God. So when the Word of God is preached and when it is spoken, it is a seed. But this parable is about different kinds of soils. It's about the connection between our heart condition and our hearing ability. You see, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But Hearing is not a guarantee. Hearing cannot just be assumed. Just because you have physical ears, you cannot assume that you hear. Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people, all of whom have two ears connected on the sides of their head. And yet, He says, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. So that's got to draw your attention that there's a little bit more going on here than just meets the eye. This isn't some quaint story about a farmer throwing some seeds around and then our little discussion about how those seeds might grow. Let him who has ears to hear, hear, Jesus said. The kingdom of God goes forth by hearing. And hearing cannot just be assumed. Right now, Satan is at work in this place to undermine what I am saying. For some of you, already this morning, you have begun to wander. Your mind has begun to go other places. While we were singing, you were thinking about other things. You were noticing things about people in the choir. You were drifting off into thoughts about other things that you needed to do. And you just merely think that your mind just wanders. Or you think maybe you didn't take your Ritalin this morning. Or you think maybe there's just some issue that you have. But here's the thing. Satan is at work to undermine what's going on here. And you've already begun to wonder. There's some of you in this room that when I begin to talk about Satan, you immediately begin to draw back. Because you're not sure that he's real. You think it's kind of weird that in a, in a modern, educated era like this, that a person like me, who has been to all the schools that I've been to, would know better than to just believe in Satan. And you won't tell us that. But you doubt it. You're not sure Satan's real. You know why? Because that's exactly what he wants you to think. 
He wants you to think that it's just ridiculous to believe in a real, literal Satan. And so every week, your mind wanders. Every week, you sort of fall into these little traps. Every week, you don't get out of something what you ought to. Every week, and and it's almost like over time, believers even can grow accustomed to sort of going through the motions. And as we go through this, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see Jesus is drawing our attention to the reality of what's actually going on in here this morning and what goes on in here every time we're together. Every single time. He's after you. He's after you. And He wants to snatch this Word away before you get it. Now let's look at the the hardest part of the parable first. Let's look at verses 8, 9, and 10. Look at verse 8. When he had said these things, he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now that's an interesting thing that Jesus says from time to time. And it always draws our attention to the fact that he's not speaking in a colony of deaf people. What is he doing? Verse 9. Then his disciples say to him, What does this parable mean? Now, this ought to clue you into something. I mean, I know the disciples do a lot of dumb things and we make fun of them sometimes, but they've spent time with Jesus. They've spent time with Jesus in ways you and I haven't. They've listened to Him and they've grown up in an agricultural climate where sowing and reaping makes complete sense to them. I don't have to explain sowing and reaping if I were in a first century group of people nearly like I would have to to us. And so the fact that they sort of pull Him aside and say... What does this parable mean? That ought to draw your attention to something that what we think is so obvious is not so obvious. Because they don't get it. I don't think we get it either. So Jesus says in verse 10, To you, to the saved, to you, Stephen, to you, John, to you, Peter, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to the rest it is given in parables. Why? that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now, aren't you glad that your child wasn't reading their Bible this week and came up to you and said, Mom, what does this mean? What would you have said? Well, um, does this mean that Jesus is speaking to some people that he doesn't want to understand what he's saying? Does this mean that Jesus is talking to some people that he wants to reject the message of the gospel? Does this mean that there are people, because this context, there's a multitude of people who have come to hear him. Does this mean, yes or no, that people who have come desiring to repent of their sin and believe that he is the Savior have come to do that and he said no to them? Is that what this means? Because it sure sounds like it to me. No. That's not what this means. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 6 verse 9. Now I have chosen to use passages to, to, to infuse into this text that are all horrifically misunderstood and misquoted in our modern day. And so I want you to pay attention to each of the texts that I'm going to use to support this message this morning. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 9. This passage in Isaiah is one we love to read. 
This is when Isaiah gets a vision of the Lord. I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the robe of his uh, train of his robe filled the temple. You know that passage? And then it comes to our favorite part where God's going to send somebody and Isaiah says, me, Lord, send me, I will go. We love that, don't we? But then we stop reading. That's a horrible passage of Scripture. That's a, that's a frightful passage of Scripture. Do you know what he's calling Isaiah to do? He's calling Isaiah to go preach and he's saying, no one's going to listen to you. You're going to be an utter failure. And Jesus is quoting that. Let's read it. The rest of it, after here I am, Lord, send me. We like that. The next, very next verse, verse 9 says this. And God said to him, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes or hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Listen, you go home and read it. Isaiah says, God, how long will this go on? And God responds to Isaiah until there's utter desolation. Wow. There's more going on than meets the eye. God is drawing our attention to, listen, there's a war going on. There's not some happy-go-lucky Farmer roaming around in his coveralls, slinging seeds around, singing Kumbaya, waiting for something to spring up. There's a war going on in here this morning. There's a war for your soul. There's a war for your family. There is a war raging right now in this room. There are some of you in this room that are, that are petrified. You're petrified that God's going to get you. And what you don't know is that Satan has you. He has you. And that the best thing that could ever happen to you would be God to get you. But it's not a guarantee. You need to pray that God will get you. Don't assume anything. There's three things that the Bible uses to communicate through parables. Number one, parables are used to conceal the message from the enemy. Jesus would oftentimes use parables and stories to conceal His message from those who attempt to thwart it, from those who would attempt to come against Him. In other words, Jesus compares faith to a mustard seed. He compares faith to leaven and bread. Ooh, isn't that scary? It's a mustard seed. Why does He do that? Because, because all those who want to kill him, all those who want to stop the message, go. It's a the guy's talking about a mustard seed. I mean, forget him. See, he's concealing the truth within this amazing. So, so we just take it for granted. We go, no, it just takes the faith of a mustard seed. But that's a very odd thing to say. I mean, I would say it takes the faith of a lightning bolt. But no, he says it's a mustard. It's concealing. But it's also revealing his message to those whom he's communicating to. You see that your experience, if you are born again this morning, is the same as my experience when I was born again. And that is, is that I could read the Bible 
prior to being saved. And I can understand some things prior to being saved because the grace of God was working in me unto salvation. And so He allowed me to see some things unto salvation. But when I became a Christian... Everything changed. The Word of God came alive. Suddenly I could see things. I could understand things. You know why? Because that's the nature of the Word of God. It's a mystery to those who've been blinded. But when God takes the scales off your eyes, it begins to come out. And so these parables are such wonderful, rich teachings. And so God uses them. He uses them to teach us that faith is, is about everyday life. It's about things that you can understand faith by, by simple things like Farming, by things like parenting. But God, there's a third reason God uses parables, and that is as an expression of judgment. And so here you find the concealing, the revealing, and the expression of judgment all in one parable. Jesus seems to be saying something that is quite troubling. I'm speaking in parables, he says, because some might hear who ought not hear. Some might see who ought not see. And to which you should respond, what does that mean? Who who shouldn't hear? Who shouldn't respond? Well, let's make sure what we're not saying. What we're not saying is that Jesus would ever, ever, ever turn away a willing heart desiring to receive Him. John chapter 6 verse 37, Jesus says that to one who comes to me, I will by no means cast him out. So we know that God will not turn away a willing heart that comes in repentance to receive Him. So what is He saying? What He is saying is that there are people whose hearts have already been hardened. They're hardened for, for a number of reasons, which the parable will express. And so they, these, the, they hear, but they don't understand. You know that? You know there's people every Sunday here that, that they hear my voice. They hear the words, but they don't get it like some of you get it. They don't, they don't hear with actual supernatural hearing. They see but they don't really comprehend. So you, you may come in here and you may hear me talk about these amazing things that go on here and these, the, the, the way that we love each other and the way that people serve each other and the way that God intervenes in your life. But, and you just think, wow, that's just amazing. But you don't get it because you can't get it because you can't hear it and you can't see it. And so here's the question. Can't Jesus just overcome the hardness of their heart? I mean, why? Here he's got a captive audience. Why doesn't he, instead of saying, he who has ears to hear, why doesn't he just command all of their ears to hear? See, wouldn't that make more sense? He can do that. Why doesn't he? Well, to try to make this as simple as possible, Jesus, a relationship with Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior is, if anything, an intimate relationship. Amen? Can intimacy be forced? No. It cannot be forced. And in order to have intimacy with Christ, you cannot force intimacy. You cannot force someone to love you. It doesn't work like that. It's a, it's a natural response. And so there's this 
tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility that we just seem to have all sorts of problems with, but the Bible doesn't have any problem with it at all. The the Bible writers just sort of deal with it as if it makes perfect sense. Jesus just speaks it like everyone would understand. And here's the thing. In this particular passage of Scripture, isn't it interesting that after Jesus said what He said, the disciples didn't say, wait a minute, I still don't get it. Say, Say it in a different way. They got it. Why don't we get it? Let me help you. Matthew chapter 11. If you want, flip to Matthew 11. If not, these verses will come up. But I want you to look intently at this passage of Scripture to see an example of what I'm talking about. Matthew 11. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. Verse 25. Listen to what Jesus is thankful for and grateful for to His heavenly Father. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. He's thanking God that He has hidden these things from certain people, but revealed them to others. Even so, Father, He says, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Now that's a troublesome passage, but here's the thing. Watch the transition in Matthew 11 that's about to take place. First, Jesus is thanking God for showing some and not showing others. And the very next thing Jesus says is, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Another passage we love to quote. Jesus says, Come, all you who are weary, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly of heart. I will give you rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. On one hand, Jesus thanks the Father for being selective. And on the other hand, He just invites all to come who are burdened and heavy laden. Does that bother you? It shouldn't. You see, this is the the amazing mystery of God. This is what fascinates me about the Scripture, is that I can look in Scripture and I can see that God doesn't play any games. God doesn't dance around the issue. God doesn't pretend to be one thing and actually be another thing. He lays all His cards out on the table. He said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to redeem the world. But I'm not just going to send you a letter. I'm not going to send you a postcard. I'm sending my son to be slaughtered and to lay his life down for you that you may know that I am fully committed, that I am all the way in, that I don't take this relationship lightly, that I'm laying it all on the line. And then he comes back and says, now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite all those. All those who are suffering and weary and burdensome, all those who would come like babes, I'm going to invite them to come. But if you're wise in your own sight, if you're prudent in your own ways, if you think you can find success, popularity, financial freedom, whatever it is in your own power and strength, I don't have time for you. I'm not going to play games with you. I didn't slaughter my son. I didn't lay it all out. See, that's the thing about God. He's honest. A lot of people don't like that. I love that. See, you know exactly where you stand with Jesus. He's not mincing words. He's saying, I have control over all things. Get it. You have a responsibility to respond to my love. Get it. I love that. I love that. And so then comes these different 
hearts, these different soils, to bring this to light. Now let's look at it in a new way. First, I want you to see the indifferent. Let's look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, A sower went out to sow seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down. And the birds of the air came and devoured it. Verse 12 gives the explanation. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear, and the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, that lest they should believe and be saved. The indifferent. This soil represents those who have a hard heart. Those whose hearts are hardened against God. I want you to just consider some things. People say things to me like, you know, I read my Bible and I just fall asleep or I just wander away or I just don't, I I read my Bible, I try to read my Bible and then I, or I listen to you preach and then I walk out or you drive home every Sunday and you don't even remember what the sermon was about. I mean, if we come back on Wednesday night and I said, hey, what did you think about the sermon? Or someone at work says, what did your pastor preach about? And you don't even remember. But you can tell me all about the movie you saw two weeks ago. Why? Do you think it's just some kind of trick in the human brain? No. It's because the enemy is at work. It's the same reason why you can't quote five scriptures, but you know every lyric to a hundred songs. All I got to do is play the first tunes and you can sing it out. Why? Because the enemy's at work against you. That's why. You can memorize anything easier than scripture. Because the enemy is trying to thwart that process. And when your heart gets hard... You've got serious, serious problems. Seed doesn't grow on trampled down, hardened, beat down soil. Well, let me give you some practical illustrations that I stand before you and watch Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Four people with a hard heart. First, there's the runner. The runner. The runner is the person who, thank God I don't have to embarrass anybody this morning because it hasn't happened yet and it won't happen now that I say this, but it happens every Sunday. About the time the sermon hits stride, about the time I stop saying what I prepared and God starts saying what He prepared and so my mouth is moving and things are coming out and God starts working, some, somebody gets up and walks out and never comes back. All the time. As soon as conviction comes, they're out. Suddenly, it's not go to the bathroom or there's something and they come back. They don't come back. They leave. Where do they go? They're a runner. They're the people that that you... There are people that I talk to. It's amazing to me. And, And I know you. And we talk. And every time you turn the conversation to a spiritual thing, they change the subject. And they think we don't notice. It's... You're running. You don't want to talk about God. You'll talk about football. You'll talk about the weather. You'll talk about anything else. And when somebody starts bringing up a serious conversation about the Lord, you just change the subject. You run. Your heart is hard. What about the denier? The denier is the person who just vetoes what they hear. You just stamp it, veto. You hear it, but you just veto it because you think, well, it just doesn't apply to me. 
Well, that's just not me. You convince yourself of your own truth. You, you just say, well, he's not talking to me because I got saved when I was 13 at, at some camp or I signed a card when I was a kid. Now, I, you, you, there's no fruit in your life. There's no evidence of salvation. You don't, you don't read your Bible. You don't have a prayer life. You're not, you, you just, there's nothing there, but you just veto it because you've just denied the truth. And so you can listen to me preach forever. Just veto, 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 veto. You're looking, you're thinking, boy, that person in front of me needs to hear this. Boy, that one back there. Boy, if they were here, where are they this morning? They need to hear that. It's you. Stop denying. It's you. The distractor. You'd be amazed what I can see from up here. There are people who purposely distract the people around. It bothers them that people are tuned into God. There are people during praise and worship where someone is, ask a choir member, they see it all the time. Someone is praising the Lord, singing, and the person next to them reaches over and starts talking to them. I want to slap them. What are they saying? I mean, unless it's the building's on fire, run. Shut up! Your mind chases trivial thoughts all through the service. You're distracted. You're always looking at things to giggle at or to look at or junk on the floor or things on the ceiling or your heart is hard. And then there's the slacker. The slacker is probably the most common of all of them because the slacker is the person who comes and, and isn't, isn't the obvious runner, isn't the obvious denier, isn't the obvious distractor. So you come and you sit and you listen, but every single Sunday you go home exactly the way you were. Nothing ever changes. And sometimes I hear people, they come up to me and they say, brother, pray for me. And they'll tell me this thing. And I'm going, you, that situation was the same. Nothing's changed. You, you told me that two years ago and you, nothing's changed. You're still doing the same dumb thing. Two years later, you're like, please pray that I won't do this anymore. I'm like, I'm going to pray that you'll listen. The slacker has a hard heart. You cannot sit, listen with ears to hear and remain unchanged. It's impossible. So if you are a slacker, I don't want you to stand up, raise your hand and, you know, let everybody know who you are. I want you to understand, put away your veto stamp and understand that what I'm saying is, is that the word of God will not return void. Do you know what that means? That means it will not return void to what it was intended. That means that not, it doesn't mean that every single person hears the word of God the same. Because some people, the Bible says, can't hear. But if you can hear, you will change. Slackers are going to make up the most astonished group of people on judgment day. Now notice who this crowd is and then we'll go. Verse 4 says that this great multitude gathered. Underline in your Bible if you're saved. They had come. Jesus didn't go to them. They came to Him. I'm not talking about the people who aren't here this morning. 
This crowd came to hear him. He's speaking this parable from a boat because the crowd is pushed up against the shore. That's what's so astonished. They came to hear this. But they're slackers, they're deniers, they're distractors, they're runners. They're indifferent. Number two, the impulsive. The impulsive person, they're destroyed by persecution. Look at verse 6. Then some rock, some fell on the rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Then in verse 13, we get the explanation. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in a time of temptation, they fall away. The impulsive are the people who come to church and seem to get swept up in the emotion of the moment. They have a shallow response to the gospel. They want to be part of something great, but they don't want to belong to someone great. They, they, there's no brokenness. There's no humility. They don't count the cost of following. And so they get wrapped up in the emotion of a moment. And oftentimes they'll come and they'll be wailing and sobbing and... You know, their nose is running and sometimes that's authentic. That doesn't mean it's not. But these particular people have a tendency. They have a tendency over time. They usually, you know, just go through the same routine where they want to get everything right with the Lord. Then they go out and they go right back to what they were doing. You see, what happens is, is that they want to be part of the emotion, but they have circumstantial faith. Their faith is based on the moment. The Bible says that in a time of temptation, they fall away. In other words, here when it's good and safe and happy and joyous, they want to follow. But when they go home and they're persecuted, when there's trials, when there's problems, when there's pressures, when there's work to be done, they're not interested and so they fall away because they were never truly converted. They just came on emotion. They came on shallowness. And you you have to be so careful here. And we can't be judgmental here. We have to be, we have to be kind and considerate and patient and we have to trust the Lord's wisdom here because I want to caution you that some of the most amazing, amazing people in this room are people who have so courageously come forward after long periods of their life where everyone would think you were saved and there was no reason for you to, you, you had nothing to hide and yet you, you, you came and there's these emotional responses and certainly we saw in our baptism service all the great things that God is doing. We have to be careful. Emotion is not bad. Don't hear me say that. It's not bad. It's wonderful. But I do want you to understand that you cannot base conversion on emotion. You have to wait. You have to be patient. You have to take time. You have to watch. Temptation will settle it all out because there are those among us who are impulsive and they will be destroyed by persecution. Number three, there's the inconvenient. The inconvenient faith, that's the person who's destroyed by prosperity. The Bible says in verse seven that some fell among thorns and the thorns sprang up and it choked it out. Verse 14, now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with what? With cares. They're choked with riches and the pleasures of life and they bring no fruit to maturity. You see, the inconvenient person comes to faith so long as it's working for them, so long as it's convenient, so long as it fits into their their model, their family, their circumstance, their situation, as long as they're popular. But the problem is, is that they're preoccupied. 
The problem is, is that they want to come to Christ, but their heart is crowded. And so they're in love with the world and they're in love with the things of the world and they're in love with money and their job and their possessions and all these things. And they just want to tack God on top of it. And so the Bible says that these people notice this is the third in the rung. So the first one's just obviously lost and gone. The second one's a little, it, it doesn't take long, but they come on strong and then they fade away. But this one takes a little more time. Because I've seen people come and make professions and, and sort of falsely present themselves as believers because it was because their wife was about to leave them. But as soon as their marriage got right, where do they go? Or because someone had cancer, but as soon as the cancer was gone, where are they? You see, this is the this is the convenient faith. These are the people who want to come for the wrong reasons. And they, and, and here's some things you can ask yourself that will help you understand if you fall into this category. If you this morning find security and money, you got a problem. If you think that your bank account gives you security, you got a problem. I mean, seriously. With this government? That's just stupid. The seductiveness of pleasure. If you are seduced by pleasure, if you are constantly trying to fill that void for that next pleasure, that next thing, that next, that next purchase, that next vacation, that next car, that next boat, that you somehow feel that this, there's this seductive link. I mean, you love God, but you love pleasure. You have a problem. Now, none of those things are bad if God's on the throne. But when God's crowded by things, when your affections are divided, here's what the Bible says, and here's the telltale sign. We don't have to wonder, how do you know, how do you know? It says clearly at the end of verse 14, no fruit comes to maturity. No fruit. You're fruitless. And then lastly, the indwelled. Verse 8. But some fell on good ground, sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. Now, the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Jesus doesn't say the good soil was good because it lacked thorns or because it lacked rocks. Good soil is distinguished from bad soil by one and only one characteristic, and that is it bears fruit. The difference between the first three and the last soil is fruitfulness. When you have a right heart, when the Word of God is alive in you, your life will bear fruit. It is absurd for anyone to believe that the God of the universe, with all the promises that He's given us in Scripture, would come and live in you and your life would remain unchanged. That is foolish. It is impossible. And God would send this parable as a warning as a warning. This isn't... This is scary. This makes me not want to be standing here saying this to you. This parable says things to me I don't want to hear. This parable says that the gospel goes out and one out of four, one out of four who came to hear it, not who I went out on visitation to see, but who came to hear it, that God, you called me to do something that most people aren't interested in. Most people won't listen. They'll pretend. They'll give me lip service. They'll look like they're in it, but they're not. They're not. Because their hearts are wrong. 
They're hardened. They're crowded. And they're playing some game with themselves. And I love you. I love you. And the thought of some of you in this room not being in heaven for eternity, some of you having heard the truth time and time again and missing the glory of God, it breaks my heart. And even now you wage war in your mind. What will people think? The devil is just barraging you and your palms are sweating and you're fearful and you're like, here we go. It's another invitation to get through. Surrender your life. For goodness sake, give it up. Because the guarantee is not that God will keep calling, that He will keep speaking, that the day may come that you may be the one who is unable to hear and unable to see. God has shown He has invited. He has given. But the Bible is clear and honest with us this morning. The Word of God, when planted in good soil, it produces fruit. There is change. The effects show up. They show in your character. They show in your discipline, in your generosity, in your servitude, in your perseverance, in your joyfulness, in your peacefulness, in your faithfulness. It shows. You cannot come. You cannot come with a good heart. And receive the right word. And remain unchanged. It's impossible. Something's wrong. And it's not the word. It's your heart. The indwelled heart. Is known. By its treasure. The indwelled heart treasures God above all things. The indwelled heart is the heart in this room and your whole world revolves around Jesus Christ. That you plan everything in your life according to God. That you you don't make decisions without consulting the Lord. Your your finances are based upon the teaching of Scripture. The way you relate to people. You forgive people. You do the hard things. You, You are driving down the road and the still small voice inside of you tells you to pick up the phone and call someone and tell them you love them and it seems awkward and seems weird but you do it. That's the redeemed heart. That's fruit coming forth and yet it's the fruit of the Spirit within you. John chapter 15, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. I want you to know this morning that the Word of God, it says in Psalm 16 verse 11, that in God, in His presence is the fullness of joy. The fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. What that means is that in salvation, in a right relationship with God, the fullness of joy. You're not longing for some worldly thing. You're longing for God. You find this fullness of joy that what makes you joyful is to see people saved, is to, is to hear the Word of God, is to see the kingdom grow, is to commission teams to go other places. Is that That's the redeemed response. That's the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of worship. That's what that is. And I'm not here this morning to condemn anybody or to scare anybody because this does a just fine job on its own. Hear. Hear what this says. Please hear. 80% of people who claim to be born again die having never led another human being to Christ. That should astonish you. 
you should come by on Saturday sometimes. On Saturday is a great time to see the indwelled heart. And yesterday, I pull up in the back. Got Stan and Angie and his family out there covered with sawdust in there building that big thing for the preschool department, working so hard so he can get the security level up to the highest and possible best thing for our children. We got VBS workers buzzing all over the place. I mean, even at the very end of the day when I leave, it's almost nighttime. I go out and, and there's Charlotte out there painting a giant butterfly on the ground. Why? Who does that? Redeemed people are just different. They're just different. They love the Lord. They just serve sacrificially. That's what makes my heart flutter like a butterfly. I just look at them and say, thank you, Jesus. Because for every one of them, there's three people who will show up every Sunday morning and leave exactly like they came. Don't let the devil steal the word away from you. Don't do it. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Today, right now, you come, let's stand, bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, we come before you, Lord, and we're humbled by your word. God, thank you for being honest with us. Thank you, Lord, that you love, you love these people so much that you'll tell them exactly like it is. Thank you for that, God. Thank you for not playing games with us this morning. Lord, this is way too important to fool around. So, Father, I pray right now that you've given ears to hear. I pray that people have heard this morning and will respond, God, to your message. I pray for the people in this room who've been born again and whose hearts have grown weary. I pray that you will till the soil of their heart this morning at this altar, Lord. I pray, Father, that they will repent of taking Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, and Wednesday nights lightly. I pray, Father. I pray for the runner this morning who's tired. Somehow in their heart they know they're not going to get away, but yet they keep running. Would that journey end this morning? And God, would you begin the glorious journey of salvation in their life? Will you grant their family and their loved ones the joy of seeing them born again right here this morning? Would you do that, God? Oh, Father, for those in this room who need to respond to you for whatever the reason, Lord, will you call them to yourself now that you might receive the glory in Jesus' name?